from Stone Mountain, Georgia, this is The Bryant Land Show, hosted by proud Gamecock and South Carolinian AB3. All right now, welcome in to The Bryant Land Show. Thank you for taking time to make the download and come through and check out our show this week. We have the folks from Elevated Wild, Wade Truong and Rachel Owen, joining us this week on the show. It's going to be great. We're going to get into that interview here in just a second. But before I do, I did receive a question from Instagram, and I wanted to answer it uh, to some of the other folks who may have the same question. I always love getting feedback, getting questions from you listeners out there. So appreciate it. This question is from uh, Soul So on Instagram. Soul So on the gram. He says, Do you hunt public land? And what do you think about African Americans hunting public land? Soul So, once again, thank you for taking the time to answer the question. Man, I don't fool around on public land too much. Um, I am fortunate that I, you know, have my own place that um, is just personally for me and uh, for my kids, kind of like our own uh, outdoor wilderness paradise, if you will. So I'm fortunate from that uh, standpoint. Um, I also joined a hunt club down here in Georgia. So I have plenty of places that I, you know, can participate and enjoy hunting. To answer your question, though, as far the other part of your question was as far as about African Americans hunting public land, um, let me emphatically say, hell yeah. Um, if that is your option, if that is your only option, then dadgummit, get out there and go enjoy it, man. There, there's no reason why you should not enjoy, you know, everything that public land has to offer my thing is just be safe, but that's anywhere. Hell, I stress safety when I go out to my place or when I go anywhere else, you know, outfitted or whatever. Um, the number one thing is to be safe and return home to your friends and family, man. So I, you know, encourage you or encourage anyone who wants to enjoy hunting and public land is your, you know, your only option, then damn it, go for it. Wade Truong and Rachel Owen from Elevated Wild stop by and join us this week on the Bryant Land Show. Anytime I can talk to someone or talk to people who are into fishing, hunting, cooking, eating the wild game, making great recipes, that is right up my alley. It was a pleasure to talk to these two. So what I'm going to do now is go ahead and fall back, get out of the way, and let you guys listen to my conversation with Wade and Rachel from Elevated Wild here on the Bryantland Show. Bryantland. Wade Truong and Rachel Owen from Elevated Wild, thank you for taking the time to join me here on the Bryantland Show. How are y'all today? Doing good. Doing good. Doing great. Thanks for having us. Oh, awesome. Awesome. So I was thrumming through you guys' profile. Actually, Jonathan 
from Black Duck Revival kind of turned me on to you guys because I know he does like a lot of wild game cooking. And he was like, hey, you should check out Elevated Wild, Wade and Rachel. And so I started, you know, going through and looking at you guys' stuff, man. Y'all are doing different things with wild game meat that I have never seen before. I just want to start there. Like, you <laughs> you guys are taking it to another level. So, Wade, I'm going to start with you. I was reading, it says, you know, you're a self-taught chef. What, I guess let's start from the beginning. Like, what, what made you want to, you know, start, with the different recipes and then what are your inspirations for all these different recipes? I guess it goes back a pretty long ways. Like I, um, you know, I worked in the restaurant industry for 20 years. Plus my parents had a restaurant. I kind of grew up in that, but I, you know, never really paid too much attention to the cooking side. I was just kind of working front of house. And then, uh, I guess about 15, 12, 12, 15 years ago, I started cooking in, you know, a professional restaurant setting. And um, I guess that's where the self-taught part comes in. I just kind of, you know, I have no formal background in it, just kind of picking it up as I went. And um, it's, I don't know, it's a lot like any other trade, in my opinion, where it's like you can learn a lot more doing it than reading about it. Right. And um, formal schools are great, but it's it's really just hands-on experience i think to learn where you learn a lot you know it's a lot like hunting in that regard so you're gonna learn a lot more from doing things wrong than reading about how to do them right and um i don't know like food's always been a big part of my life you know my parents you know they were immigrants to the u.s they knew what it was like not to have a lot Mm -hmm. and you know family dinner was a big deal you know i was like this is something we you know regardless of our moods or what we wanted, we always got together, had dinner. And um, I don't know, food has always been extremely important to me. And you know, I think hunting, you know, kind of tied that all together in a very tangible way. It was like, you know, how do you participate in one of your only core needs? You know, like we only need a few things and food is one of those things. And I don't know. Like, I feel like everybody that hunts has that in there somewhere where it's like you're going out and doing something you actually need. You know, like societally, you might not need to, but fundamentally, I think it's pretty human to want to procure your own sustenance. Uh, I want to take a step back when you said your parents were immigrants. Where did they uh, immigrate from? Uh, they both were in Saigon. Um, okay. So they got out in like a. I want to say like 72, something like that. Um, don't quote me on that date, but it's around that time. Basically, when the U.S. troops started withdrawing, they uh, they fled. They met up in Indonesia, actually. And that's where they met in a refugee camp. And um, <clears throat> from there, they had a long trip around the world and uh, ended up in Virginia. And uh, that's where I've been. You know, I was born here and... Grew up in the Shenandoah Shenandoah Valley and kind of lived in fairly close proximity to that my whole life. Now, with them being immigrants and then, like you said, self-taught chef, was your hunting 
kind of self-taught as well or did you did you come from a hunting background once your parents got to got to the states or how, how did that work out uh yeah neither one of them hunted and you know i didn't get into it until my mid-20s just a few years before i met rachel actually and it was something that like i was aware of like i the count the place i grew up there was a lot of deer hunting and um I don't know if they do it in uh, in the South, where I mean, rather in Georgia, where you are, but you know they run a lot of dogs in Virginia for yep. deer during the deer season. Yep. And I personally, you know, when I saw that growing up, I wasn't all that enamored with it. It was like, you know, a lot of it was a lot of dogs and Confederate flags, and you know, it was like not really my crowd. <laughs> right. And uh, so I never really thought much of it, but once I got into you know, working in a restaurant and sourcing food and being aware of like where everything came from and working with farmers directly. And hunting just seemed like the next logical step as far as like, how can you get closer to your food? Mm -hmm. It was also something like, you you can't go and buy venison really, you know, like you can buy New Zealand stuff, but it's not the same. And it's something I wanted to do for, for me personally. But after I got into it, you know, I just, I just, you know, did some reading, watched a lot of YouTube and, um, just decided to do it. And it took a while to find success, but I don't know. It just, it, you know, Rachel can attest to it, but every year it's like, it becomes more and more a part of our lives. We just keep doing more and more and more and just, you know, everything else kind of falls to the wayside. No, that that definitely makes sense, and and it's um, a good uh, dropping-off point right there because, Rachel, like I was saying before, you know, I was reading uh, your part of the bio, and it says you uh, came to hunting late, came late to hunting, and and that basically pretty much describes me uh, to a T. I didn't start really hardcore hunting until about four or five years ago, no, absolutely love it. Love bow hunting. But for you, what what made you decide that, okay, this is something that I want to do and just to get involved in that and then transition it to the cooking side? Well, I mean, I don't know. I think that a lot of people, especially our generation and younger, there's a lot of concern about, you know, where your food comes from. Mm. And, you know, I think like a lot of people around my age, you know, you kind of go through your vegetarian phase and, you know, even when I wasn't eating meat, I always said, well, you know, if somebody hunted it, I would eat it. It just always seemed like there was a a really clear ethical distinction between factory farmed meat and hunted meat. And I didn't grow up knowing any hunters, uh, nobody in my immediate family hunts. You know, I grew up in the suburbs of Richmond. And so it just wasn't really a part of my upbringing. But, you know, I did grow up doing a lot of camping. I mean, we camped all over the country when I was a kid. And I used to love fishing with my dad. You know, he wasn't a serious fisherman, but, you know, we would go out and catch bluegill and I just loved it. And so, you know, after college, um, mutual friends introduced Wade and I. And I remember the first conversation we had, my friend goes, oh, you got to talk to him. He loves to fish. (laughs) And (laughs) and I was like, oh, cool. You're like, yeah, I totally want to talk to that one. But, you know, that's kind of what started our, you know, relationship was, you know, kind of a a mutual desire to go, you know, pursue game, pursue fish. And, you know, he was just getting into hunting. 
And, uh, you know, right when we first started dating, you know, I mean, we fished the whole summer and then, you know, the first fall we were together, uh, you know, he took me out hunting and uh, I shot my first buck that season. Wow. And so the hunting, yeah, yeah. So the hunting really came into play for me, you know, as part of my relationship, but it was, it wasn't just because I was already dating him. It was something that kind of drew me to him because it was a lifestyle that I, you know, wanted to participate in. And, you know, as for the cooking, you know, Wade does a lot of the recipes for the site, but, you know, I do have my input there as well. I love to cook. I've never done it professionally. I was always front of house in the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but being in proximity to so much food, uh, you know, it's it's inspiring. It really gets you thinking about what you can do at home in the kitchen. And, uh, you know, I just I've always loved food. Even as a kid, I was I was the kid that like refused to order off the kids menu, which I'm sure my mom hated when the bill came. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just it's always been something that I've been passionate about. Now, the thing that caught my eye at the end of your bio, just like going through the website and everything, it says Plant Witch, Cannon Queen, editor and webmaster for Elevated Wild. Now, I'm familiar with the Cannon Queen. My mom canned. Uh, she still cans a little bit uh, now, not as much as she uh, did when we were grow- or when I was growing up. Editor, webmaster, obviously self-explanatory, plant witch. Talk to me about that. <laughs> what, what is that about? <laughs> well, that's a fancy way of saying I'm more of the forager between the two of us. You know, we both have our you know strengths and our weaknesses. And, you know, we both do, you know, what we love to do overlaps considerably. But we definitely both have our areas of expertise. You know, Wade's the gear guy. You know, I'm the plant girl. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm the one like picking up mushrooms when we're walking through the woods and, you know, identifying plants and, you know, kind of keeping an eye on the foraging side of things when we're out and about. Gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, something else that I was kind of curious about, because, you know, a lot of my audience, you know, we're familiar with, you know, hunting, deer hunting, hogs, you know, all that kind of stuff, turkey, going fishing, but the foraging you do that. Is that something that you just kind of do like while you're out? Do you take your time and just say, Hey, I'm going to go and forge today. Or is it like a combo activity when you're out in the woods? Like just, it's something that I've never done and I've always been kind of intrigued by it. Well, you know, for us, it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I'll be the first to admit that the foraging does take a back seat to the, uh, hunting and fishing. You know, if it's a, choice between like turkey hunting and then walking around the woods looking for pheasant backs we're gonna go turkey hunting (laughs) but that that being said you know especially in the off season you know we'll definitely we'll we'll plan specific foraging trips to go out and look for stuff depending on what's in season um but you know the bulk of our foraging kind of occurs incidentally which i really you know i think that's a really great way to get into it as a beginner Because, you know, you're if you don't know very much about foraging and then you set out on like this 10 mile hike and you're like, all right, I'm going to go after morels today. That's the one thing I know how to look for. Mm -hmm. You're probably going to get skunked and you're probably not going to have a super great time. Which morels being mushrooms, correct? Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. No, no. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, we kind of have picked it up as an incidental, uh, you know, just as we're walking around going, oh, what's this? What's that? 
you know, bringing a little bit home and looking it up, doing a little bit of research. You know, I've got a fair number of really decent foraging books, but there's also so many resources online. And what's great about the social media aspect of the foraging world is, you know, you see these posts kind of real time. So, you know, what's in season and you can start training your eye for what to look for. So that's kind of how I've been doing it is just picking it up as I go. Awesome. Awesome. Now, for both of you guys, what would you say is your favorite hunt? You know, deer, hog, turkeys, like what what gets your blood going? Oh, man. Yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always joke around and say that, you know, because people ask me that a lot. And I say well, it's whatever's in season at the moment. Like, it's, you know, it's, I love it all. And, you know, we love it all. And, I mean, this past turkey season, I don't think I've ever hunted that hard in my life. Mm. And I had a blast. But, you know, by the time it it's duck season, you know, I'm going to be, you know, wrapped up in decoy cord and, you know, just, just itching for cold weather. So it's, I don't know, it's all the above. I mean, I just, I, I do think I am partial and I'm, I'm not going to speak for Rachel, but I think she feels the same. Anytime you can interact with the animal a little more, uh, directly, mm-hmm. um, you know, like turkey hunting, duck hunting, goose hunting, uh, even seek a deer hunting, you know, we're beagling at these things. Yep. And, uh, you know, that having that immediate answer, you know, maybe it's delayed a little bit, but like you can hear if you did something right or wrong. Right. The call in response. Yeah. We love that. I mean, I started hunting with a, a deer decoy fairly recently during the rut and I like doing that. You know, like you, you can get a, you can get a response out of a deer and you can kind of, it's kind of like slow motion, like Turkey hunting, you know, it takes like an hour for the buck <laughs> to like get down wind of the decoy. Right. But you know, it's still there and it's like that anticipation. And honestly, I, I think I just, uh, now that I say it out loud, I think I like just having decoys involved. I don't know. I like the idea of counterfeiting, a scenario and tricking an animal on its own, you know, terms. No, like they, that's just deeply satisfying. Yeah, no, there's definitely, definitely something um, to be said about that. Decoys, when it comes to turkeys, are you a running gun or are you like decoy in the field? Like, how, what's your turkey hunting style? Um, I haven't. I don't think we've uh, developed a particular style, but we'll, you know. We had birds coming in this year that came in textbook, you know, fighting the Jake and, you know, full strut. And then one of the last birds we killed, you know, I called to it for about an hour and a half. And Rachel and I, you know, I retreated, you know, we did everything we could have done to try to get it to come towards us. And at the end of the day, Rachel was like, you got to get in there. We got to kill it. So we (laughs) snuck like 200 yards into the swamp bottom. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, you know, I, it's it's funny because you know you get that response you can hear that bird gobbling but you can tell it's not budging and it's like you know everything tells you to just sit tight and just keep playing the game the way it is but right you know i think i think that's where you know we work together really well as a team is like we both come at it 
with the same passion and the same goals, but we're looking at it a little different. And I think that helps a lot. You know, like I always want to move decoys and fidget around and, you know, just like overthinking the gear and, you know, I'll, I will kind of make excuses for different aspects that I can't control. Whereas Rachel is more like, I think we're in the right spot. We're here in the right weather. Let's just sit it out. You know, like it's just, or, you know, like in this case, it was like, let's just go down there and kill it. I was about to say a little, a little bit more patient, except when she's had enough with this turkey and it's like, we need to go get it. Yeah. You know, like I wasn't ready to kill that bird. Yeah. I didn't want to think that I couldn't pull him out of that bottom, but you know, that was not the case. And like sneaking in on it was, was the right call. So I don't know. Like I love turkey hunting. It's, it really is an addiction. I don't know. It, it, it is. I, I turkey hunted a little bit more this year, obviously with everything that was going on and whatnot. It's frustrating, especially Easter's. Oh, yeah. Easter's are really frustrating. Like Mark, my best turkey hunts were trips to like Nebraska and Kansas when you dealing, you know, with Rios or Miriams, you know, turkeys that respond to calls and if you get a, you know, a hot gobbler on the on the call, you know, they're gonna come straight to it. They're still gobbling, you know, all the way into the into the setup. Easterns, it's like they hit the ground and they just shut up and and it was just it was just frustrating for me. Like you know, I enjoy it, especially when you get, you know, birds that are responsive, but the either running around and trying to cut them off at the pass with the Easterns or sitting, you know, in a food plot where they've come to, you know, to the to feed for three straight days. And then the day that I go, they nobody shows up, only a couple of hens show up and then you don't hear any gobbles like that. God, it's frustrating. So they, I can't oh, yeah. wait for deer season to start. But <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you on that turkey yeah. hunting. When it goes right, it is very rewarding. Yeah, I think that's part of the uh, the addiction, though. For me, is like every time I think I have something figured out, you know, that confidence is turned around, like like at a light switch. You know, it's like yeah, I roost a bird. And I'm like, I know where that bird is. I'm gonna be 80 yards away from it in the morning. There's only one way for that bird to get out. And, you know, he'll find a way to get around me. And, you know, if I think just like with food and everything else, like I think if I was 100 percent successful or even close to that, Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have as much drive to do it. You know, like, I, you know, for me, like the food is the most important part of the hunt. Right. But if somebody was telling me, hey, go sit in a tree stand for nine hours, and at the end of that, you'll, I'll give you a cooler full of deer meat, I would tell them to, you know, fuck off. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to sit in a tree stand for eight hours just for, you know, something else to be handed to me. You know, I was like, I think it's about suffering a little bit and it's about being frustrated. And it's like all those emotions it tied to it. Yeah. That enrich it, you know, like, I don't know. I think that goes into the food culture thing and goes into like my upbringing with food and, you know, being around food and working with food for so long. It's like, it's, you know, it's not worth a lot if you don't have to work for it. And when it's not worth a lot, it's disposable, you know? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you see how much food gets thrown away in a restaurant or just out of any average household, you know, it's like, 
Yeah. You just buy it. It's cheap. It's on sale. Or it's like, oh, I bought too much or I left it in the freezer too long. And it's not a big deal because it's just, you know, it's got a date on there. It says throw away this time. People just throw it away. They don't even think anything of it. Yeah. But that's all, you know, there's a big impact of all the stuff that we buy and consume. And I don't know, like, I don't let any of my game meat go to waste because, like, I know how hard it was to kill that turkey. You know, like, I know how cold it was when we're shooting ducks. And it's like, (laughs) you have a little more, like, sweat equity invested. And, like, I think regardless of, you know, your intent, hunting, I think, makes you more mindful, you know, just, like, you just have so much tied into your nourishment that you have to kind of like consciously or subconsciously value it a little more. Well, it, it's like, you know, I'll make like spaghetti with, you know, with my venison or whatever. And, you know, it, inevitably I don't make enough. I make more sauce than I have noodles. So we're sitting there. And we eat all the noodles and everybody's eating. And I still have all this sauce left. And I'm like, you know what? We're going to be eating Sloppy Joe's for lunch. Because I'm not getting rid of my sauce. <laughs> where, you know, going back to the disposable thing, you know, I've seen it where, you know, it's just like, all right, you made your ground beef or whatever. And, you you know, you're finished with it. You may eat it, like, for another day, man. Look, I'm not wasting a drop of my venison if I make the um, back straps and I cut up too many back straps and we have back straps left over, then we're going to eat back straps until they're gone. Because, like you said, it's not like you can go to the store and just get another pack. You know, when when you're invested in it like that and, you you know, you sweat and paid the price to get it, you, you look at it a little bit differently. No, absolutely. And I think that goes with anything. You know, like, if it's too easy it becomes like normalized, you know, it's just like, it's, you shouldn't have everything that you ever wanted at your fingertips, I think, because then you get, you know, spoiled and you don't appreciate the things you do have. And, you know, I think Rachel and I, you know, the hunting really kind of reinforces that, that mindset. It's like, we generally know we're going to, you know, shoot a few deer and mm-hmm. we'll probably be good for food. You know, like if not, we can buy some, Right. but there is like this pressure there. It's like, well, I don't want to buy any factory farm meat. I don't want to buy any beef. So we're going to have to do this. And I think that kind of like self-imposed drive puts a little like, add some stakes to the whole thing. It's not just like we do this for fun, which we do, but we do it because we've kind of imposed it on ourselves. So like, this is what we do to get these things that we want. And you have to, you know, invest some time in it and you're going to have to get cold and you're going to have to be frustrated and things will go wrong. And I think that's, it's, it's like, I don't know. It's very, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. This is like, it's, it's so satisfying when you get it done right? because you've added so much emotional weight to it. No, that totally, that, that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Rachel, for you, do you have a favorite hunt or are you all across the board? 
Oh man, there's nothing I don't like to hunt. I'll tell you that much. Okay. I think there's stuff that I'm definitely like recently been really excited about and it's all stuff that's been kind of new to us lately. I think it's just a novelty of it, Mm -hmm. but all the hunting we've been doing in the marshes on Virginia's coast is so cool. And it has really captivated me, just everything about it, the landscape, the animals. I mean, this is stuff that, you know, we live in Fredericksburg. And so, you know, these are animals that we don't normally see. Just everything about it is just a little bit different. So last fall, we went on a uh, Sika hunt out on the eastern shore. Okay. And that was just about the coolest thing I think I've ever done. I mean, it was just wild. We were on Assateague Island and... uh, you know, there's a herd of wild ponies on this just wild barrier island and sitting there in this, you know, climbing stand and a pine tree overlooking the marsh, you know, watching the sunrises and the sunsets. You, you know, you see both because this barrier island is so narrow. Right. So you see it over the water either way. And, you know, the herds of wild ponies coming up and sniffing the gear that I'd piled down at the base of the tree and hearing those deer bugle. I mean, it was just it was nothing like what I could imagine hunting in Virginia would be like. I didn't, and, uh, I didn't even realize that there were Sika in Virginia. Yeah. That's, you uh, know, secret. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Oh. Sorry. Everybody else that hunts Sika deer in Virginia. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, no, that's, they, uh, that's like my buddy in Oklahoma. I went duck hunting in Oklahoma with, uh, with him this past year. And I posted it, and everybody on uh, on uh, Instagram and Facebook was like, "Shh, there are no ducks in Oklahoma. You just killed all of them. There are no more. Nobody else come. There are no ducks." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they don't exist. <laughs> That's funny. So about that Sika deer hunting I did in Blackwater. <laughs> hey, uh, pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> wow no that's yeah. awesome man it, it, that's yeah. different and it's awesome were you bow hunting or rifle or bow yeah nice. yeah there's a rifle season too but we wanted to get out there during the rut yeah so that was really cool and then we went on a rail hunt last fall too which was just incredible now the rail uh, explain explain to the folks what a rail hunt so rail are shorebirds okay they're the only shorebird you can hunt as far as well, I guess snipe maybe uh, depends on how you classify all that. But mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're a shorebird and there's this, there's a season in the fall for them and uh, they inhabit the clapper rail, Virginia rail and Sora rail. Uh, they all inhabit the marshes and uh, you kind of hear them. They have this like real harsh rattling call, but you very rarely see them. They really, they're, they're small birds and they like to stay real tucked away in that marsh grass. You know, if you, if you Google rails, mm-hmm. Every single description that comes up with the word secretive, they're a secretive bird. They're the secretive bird. And so what you do is you wait for a really high tide and you take your boat out into the marsh and you have to pull it around. You're not allowed to shoot with the motor in the water, Mm. uh, but you just pull around and, uh, you know, try to flush rail up and shoot them. And it is wild. It's, it's just, it's such a pristine landscape where we were hunting. It's all public land. It's public marsh. It's undeveloped. You know, there's nobody else out there. It just feels like you're at the end of the world and you're just shooting these crazy looking shorebirds. And I don't know, it was really, we had an amazing hunt. It was the first time we'd ever done it. Wow. Now that, that's definitely, 
next level. That's some next level type stuff. Yeah, because I, a matter of fact, I just googled it just now. It's chicken shaped marsh marsh birds, rounded wings, family of the rail of the uh, Raleigh da. Uh, mm-hmm. Yep, names include coots. Yep. Okay. Wow. That's that's awesome. How long is that season? Like, how is it just like a couple of days, like a week, or it was like a month, right, Wade? Uh, I think so, but you know, it's like Rachel was saying, it's so tide dependent. You know, the tide's not abnormally high. Mm-hmm. Like your odds of finding one of these, like you can walk over top of one and it won't flush. You know, like you, they need that. You need the water to like to kind of flush them, place them. Yeah. yeah, like they need they need to not have a place to just scurry away because they'll just kind of hide in that grass and you'll never see them. Mm. So we actually got out there right after a tropical storm um incidentally like we had planned some days and right when that was about to happen i was like hey this hurricane's coming we might not be able to go but it got downgraded and we got there and nobody was on the entire shore basically because you know everybody thought this hurricane was going to cancel everything and uh, the water was way high the birds were you know, once we found, once we could positively ID one, mm-hmm. I mean, they were everywhere. And it's, it's honestly somewhere between like rabbit hunting and quail hunting. It's like, sometimes they run, sometimes they swim, <laughs> sometimes they fly, you know, it's like, it's close quarter, just like they pop up and they, they either try to hide or they fly away. And it's, it's a lot of fun, you know, like pulling around those marshes is, you know, can be definitely tough. But it's uh, like Rachel saying that that landscape is is amazing. It's like it looks like you're gone back in time. You know, it's like just completely untouched. Wow. So I know you were saying you, pretty much everything. So let's let's run through the checklist. So we know deer, we know turkeys, hogs in Virginia or no? Not really a thing here. They're isolated cases, but they usually get trapped out pretty quick by the uh, game agency. Gotcha, gotcha. I wasn't really, I wasn't really sure. So, let's see: deer, turkey, uh, rail, duck, and goose. Uh, what's how's the goose hunting in Virginia? Because that that's one that I I've enjoyed doing the last few years in Illinois. And man, we we've shot some big geese in Illinois. <laughs> so, how, how is it out uh, over there? Well, it depends who you know. You know, like Virginia mm. is oh, so much of it is private land. Yep. We happen to be good friends uh, with some uh, some some landowners that uh, I mean, it's it's the best goose hunting I think on the East Coast. Quite honestly, it's wow. Yeah, you know, we'll see on a good day. We'll see ten, fifteen thousand birds, <sighs> and uh, they're all concentrated in a very very small area. And you get the right weather, you know, I've, I got some videos up somewhere on my Instagram or, you know, like they'll just pour into the field and it's, you know, sometimes you got to work for them, but you know, if you, they flare off, you know, there's going to be more birds you can call to. And yeah. it's, it's pretty cool. You know, are, it's like one of those things that are you are y'all laying out like lay, the layout blinds or pits? Uh, or? No, we usually have those fields usually have a, a, a blind, uh, like a brush blind built in either in the field edge or down a hedgerow. Okay. Yep. Just brush it up with some cedar. And, yep. You know, it's pretty comfy. 
it's not like a like we're not cooking breakfast out there or like <laughs> cooking lunch or anything but like it's uh you know right. you can sit you can sit up and chat and you know do the whole waterfowl thing you know it's just like you just talk and hang out with the dog and then you know when you get the birds working you uh you, know, you get serious yeah yeah no it, it's definitely uh more of a camaraderie uh hunt which is what i do enjoy about it because you get out there and like you say you can just kind of cut up and then when the birds come through then you you kind of do your business and go home now the interesting thing while we're on goose hunting that in illinois for the years that i was up there and i was doing it it was uh two bird limit per man uh last season they went up to three per man what is what's the limit in uh virginia it's uh it's changed a little bit over the years like uh you know when we started hunting geese it was two and this past year they went down to one because oh wow especially the zone we're in it's kind of like the this is where the geese where we hunt the geese like they winter there like they'll be there all winter until it warms up so again that's why you see this thick concentration of birds sure but yeah, due to the uh, poor hatch, like two seasons ago, you know, the recruitment rate was, I think like less than 1% or something along those lines. So mm-hmm. they cut the season in half, not like number of days was cut in half and uh bag limit was cut in half. Wow. So, so we barely got after them, but it's, um, you know, it was a tough year. Um, the weather was not cooperative, you know, it was like 65 degrees around Christmas. So, you know, it's for the best where always sad not to be able to hunt as much as we want to or put as much in the freezer but you know the long-term strategy of keeping the population stable is you know definitely more important definitely definitely and then rabbit dove quail any of that as well or no uh, a little bit rachel has actually done more rabbit hunting than me i'm always <laughs> i'm always working she does <laughs> Rabbit, yeah, uh, we, uh, rabbit sharpshooter, uh, Rachel? Oh, I wish. Now, I've only ever been on one proper rabbit hunt, and that was this past winter. I think it was, gosh, it must have been right around Valentine's Day because Wade was at work. He mm-hmm. couldn't go. Uh, but a buddy of ours has a bunch of uh, rabbit beagles. And so, you know, we went out with the dogs, and uh, it was really eye-opening. I'd never hunted with dogs before. Well, I mean, you know, duck hunting, but yeah, yeah, yeah. not this kind of um and it was really really fun i felt like i've been missing out honestly uh <laughs> huey and his dogs i mean the beagles were like the size of like a chipotle burrito they were tiny and they did such a good job running these rabbits and i mean we covered a fair amount of ground but we pulled a lot of rabbits out of that brush it was really really something to watch them and they would go into the marsh i mean these rabbits would run in the marsh and these beagles i mean they're tiny I thought they would all drown, but <laughs> just, <laughs> they did just fine. It was it was really really something. I, I really hope that Wade can come out with us this this coming winter because uh, that was really neat. We do a little bit of squirrel hunting here and there too. Uh, no quail. Okay. We haven't done any quail hunting around here. We have quail, but just not in the sort of numbers that are really huntable. Um, so we haven't done very much of that. Yeah, the the squirrels. It's funny. I try to do. Because squirrel season starts so early here. I think it starts like around August you can start. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was did different things that I was reading. It was like you want to wait till it gets a little bit cooler because when you 
shoot them in the heat and it's just all kind of different stuff with the meat and stuff that i guess like the cold like kills off like certain parasites or something that i was reading but i was trying to use it at least just like as a bridge until deer season starts and then like a couple Mm -hmm. times we went it would rain and it was just a a total cluster like we didn't get anything uh accomplished but i'm I'm, (laughs) I'm definitely wanting to try to do more squirrel hunting. And then everybody that I know is that rabbit hunt swear it's the best thing since sliced bread. I've never done it, but like I said, everybody that does it, um, that I know that does it, swears by it. So, Yeah, it is fun. Yeah, when Rachel was telling me about it, I was pretty jealous. I was like, well. I ran around and, you know, I think they shot like 18, 19 rabbits that day. And um, Wow. But mm-hmm. I know I I wanted to touch on that squirrel hunting though. I think we don't do a ton of it, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you what, man. That's that's the most humbling kind of hunting, other than <laughs> turkey hunting, in my mind. Like really, <laughs> you know, I don't know how many squirrels I've had on my pack or in my tree stand while I'm deer hunting. Yep. But as soon as I walk into the woods with a 22, it's like you can like I just. I don't know what it is, but I'll shoot one, and then it's like you don't see a squirrel for another five miles. Like <laughs> I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm being quiet enough or something. But like, I go, I think I go into it too confidently, and like, oh yeah, there's squirrels everywhere here. You know, I saw 19 of them the other day when I was deer hunting. Right, so I just go right back there, and it's just like, it's not that easy. You would think it is. I think it's the exposure. You know, we've got like 10 squirrels in our backyard. You know, any given day. So it's like, yeah, they're just everywhere right but as soon as you pick up a small gun to go after them it's like they're nowhere <laughs> well it, it's funny but you say that because like i can walk out of my house now here in city limits and i mean they're all in the backyard they're swinging from the trees i mean it's like a fucking jungle gym in my backyard yeah. like they're just <laughs> like swinging and hopping from tree to tree you see some of them they cross like in front of my porch when I'm going to get my mail and it's just like, Hey, how's it going today? And then when you get like out in the woods, it's the same, like you just said, I, like I'm sitting here at house and I'm like, if I was not in city limits, I could sit out here and just pick these things off. But as oh, soon as you stay, like you said, as soon as you take a step out into the woods, a couple of crunches and it's just like, you don't see anything. It, I feel like it's like that with all animals. Obviously they have an internal switch to know when the season starts like i see turkeys when i'm deer hunting all the time i see deer when i'm fishing like i saw like new growth bucks and stuff when out fishing and then you see like all these fawns and does and stuff when i'm riding my atv but you know come september won't be able to find a deer in the woods and then I don't know. It's crazy. It's yeah. How that no, works. it's incredible how animals respond to pressure. You know, it's like they can, it's like, it's almost like they can smell your intent. Right. Now, like, just like, I don't know how many times I've been zeroing a gun, you know, and, you know, it's gunfire, you know, just like for hours, just downrange. And then you see a deer just walk right in front of you. And it's like, you know, it's only a few weeks away from the season, you know, and there's nothing different about this gunfire than the gunfire that's going to happen later but it's like it's almost like they know your intent you know and there's nothing to (laughs) prove that but it's like as soon as i go in the woods of the 22 i see deer and i see no squirrels and you know the the other way you know as well you know it's just like 
they they have like a sixth sense for like what you're up to. It, it's bananas. Now I want to jump back to the cooking before I get y'all out of here. So a couple, I want to say maybe like a year or so ago, about two years ago, I tried to do a ham with um, a butt roast that I got from a hog that I killed, um, small sow. So it was, you know, definitely tender enough. But I saw where I believe I saw on your on your page where you did like a deer ham. My question, what is the secret to the ham? Because I tried it with the butt with the uh with the butt and I completely screwed it up. So and then when I saw that you did it with a deer, I'm just like, okay. So what is the secret to the ham? What what, what are we missing? Um I guess I got get a quick question you're talking about um like the tasso ham right yeah like yeah so like there's two essentially there's like two types of ham there's like a dry cured that's like your prosciutto serrano virginia style you know it's like uncooked ham yeah and that's like a whole different thing that's okay. that's something we've been exploring you know with a dry curing chamber and you know controlling the humidity and oh, wow. the temperature but um, like a cooked ham, like a tasso or like your spiral or your honey glaze, all that. Um, it's, I think it's, I think most people overcook it is what it comes down to. Like, mm. you know, the brines are all very similar. If you use an equilibrium brine or anything along those lines, you're going to get the right amount of salt and sugar in there. And, you know, it's just the amount of time you brine is just dependent on the weight. Um, from there, you know, I think there's a lot of overcooking done in wild game in general. You know, I was like, everybody in this country has been like, you know, they've been told like, Hey, you have to cook everything to this temperature, mm-hmm. everything to this temperature. And, you know, having worked in the restaurant industry for a long time and, you know, doing a lot of food safety stuff, you know, there's a little more nuance to that. You know, like they say, poultry is a 165, right? Mm-hmm. But it's 165 for 15 seconds, which means it's basically 165, but it doesn't mean hold it at 165 for an hour. Gotcha. You know, like everything's really dead then. <laughs> and you can go you can go lower in temperature and get the same amount of food safety, you know, like enough pathogen to kill off and enough um temperature to get rid of your salmonella e coli etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. uh nose is a different thing but you can achieve these levels of safety with a lower temperature over an extended period of time and uh on, a, on our website we do a lot of sous vide when it comes to reaching target temperatures so like with the venison ham you know there's no fat on it <clears throat> unlike a pork ham so if you held it at say 145 degrees for hours Mm -hmm. you know it would be jerky basically you know that's Mm. that's almost the same temperature i set my dehydrator when i'm making jerky so you just want it to get to that temperature internally but not go over and not stay there so long that all the moisture leaves it so you know the brine helps because you're adding moisture to the meat itself but i think it's about controlling the the rise of thermal mass. So like if you're doing it in a smoker or something, you want a way to monitor that internal temp 
um, you know, Camp Chef, Traegers, all those have probes. Yep. And that works really well. Again, we do a lot of sous vide, so I'll set a bath to, you know, a target temp of, say, 140. Drop it in there, and I just leave it in there just long enough to get to that temperature. And once it's at that temperature, everything's at that temperature. So after two hours, like a two-inch thick roast is at whatever temperature I set it at, and I can pull it out, and it never goes over. And also with that cooking method, like all the juices are in that bag, so you're not losing anything really. It all kind of stays there. And when you're saying sovian, what that is that like a like a marinating kind of? Uh, it's it's kind of like a the easiest way to describe it is like a it's like a hot tub for food. Ah, you know, basically, okay. It's basically a water heater and a water pump. Gotcha. So you set the water to a certain temp. You put whatever you want into a bag and mm-hmm. you set it in that water. And so you're applying direct heat through the water, which is like very consistent and holding temperature. And very consistent, like, like thermally. So, like, all the water is basically the same temperature. It's not like the oven where the bottom half's hotter than the top half. And, you know, it's lab equipment originally. They use it in a lot of commercial kitchens and catering and stuff. But it's readily available now. And I think, you know, I don't cook everything in it. But when you, especially when you're doing big things that can easily be overcooked, like a ham, um, you know, I use bacon, even uh, corned beef, corned venison, really anything that you want to a certain temperature, but you don't want over. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fantastic way to finish that. And with, you know, feral pigs and bear and anything with trichinosis, where that would be a concern, you can set it to, you know, like say 155, 165, whatever the safe temperature is to, you know, kill off all of that um pathogen you can just set it there bring it up to that temperature and be done with it because you know you cook anything to like 200 degrees for a long long time you know and the internal temperature is 200 degrees it's going to be dry right like it doesn't matter if it's a pork butt pork shoulder pork ribs it's like it will be dry after a certain amount of time and to get something you know at its center point on something thick to that temperature it takes a long time so everything on the outside is going to be way overcooked by the time that some, you know, the inside is cooked. So that's why the sous vide works so well. It never goes over your target temperature. Gotcha, gotcha. Moderate. Keep your your temperature at a at a moderation, like you say, and keep it from going like up or down or whatever. So yeah. And it, and it's funny that you mentioned the Traeger because that's something that I've been eyeing for a while. That's probably going to be a gift to myself at some point. You know, those those things are badass. <laughs> so. Pellet grills are pellet grills are cool. We just got one fairly recently, and I mean it is. <laughs> I, I still love setting up a charcoal, you know, chimney and getting all that going and burning yep. hardwood. But there is something very nice about being able to just power on a grill and set the temperature on your phone and you know text you when it's ready. So that is uh, oh, wow. a modern convenience. Wow, I saw and it's funny because I saw like how it has like the Wi-Fi and the connections and stuff, but I I've not dug in deep into everything that that thing can do. So you basically you set the temp on your phone, you set the time or whatever, and it just shoots you a text. Just shoots you a text. Yeah, it's it's 
it's kind of crazy. Like I, wow. you know, I was, I was pretty opposed to Wi-Fi on a lot of stuff. Right. I don't, I'm not like, I don't want more connectivity. Right. You know, like I just kind of want to like, I don't need a Wi-Fi on my rice cooker or my coffee <laughs> machine, you know, right. but it is nice. Like, you know, you can dial in the temp, you dial in how much smoke you want and it tells you when it's ready. You set the probes in and you can kind of look at it on your phone, on your app. And it's like, oh, you know, this is what temperature your food's at. This is the temperature of the grill. It takes a lot of the guesswork out. I think that lets people be a little more successful because grilling is very temperamental. Yes. You know, like, you know, people say, hey, get the coals hot. And it's like, well, is that five pounds of coal or is it 20 pounds? You know, like it's so relative and it is a lot more nuance to it and i think that's why people that are real good with charcoal are going to be diehard charcoal people you know fans because like it took a long time of trial and error for them to figure it out right how to do it perfectly and honestly the pellet grill kind of you know takes a lot of that guesswork out you set the temp and it's it'll get to that temp right and it makes it real convenient for like you know just you want to grill something you just have it on 10 minutes later, it's ready to go versus, you know, starting a chimney starter and, you know, <laughs> dealing with all that like as much as I love it. Is it, is it right? Is the charcoal lid? Is all the charcoals lid? Is this only yeah. the section lid? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've, I've played There's that There's no game. replacing that smell of charcoal, though. I mean, I love yeah. the smell of a charcoal grill, but... But the the pellets though that's the that, that's the wave of the future and the wave hopefully at my house will be in the next couple of months. Um, <laughs> you definitely treat yourself, <laughs> Wayne and Rachel. I really appreciate you guys coming through on the show. Before you guys get out of here, let folks know where they can find you, Instagram, web page, everything. How can these folks out here get involved and check out elevated wow uh you can find us on instagram uh or elevated wild uh we've also got a facebook page with the same name um and then beyond that we've got our website it's uh, elevatedwild.com or you can email us at hello at elevatedwild.com awesome awesome wait rachel like i said i really appreciate it i'm looking forward to uh seeing more stuff from you guys and seeing the different recipes and then maybe i will be brave enough at some point to try some of them and hopefully not mess them up (laughs) thank you so much for having us on just reach out anytime if you have any questions you know always always happy to help people along definitely definitely i will do so you guys have a great one i really appreciate it all right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Brian. Once again, I want to thank Wade and Rachel for coming through and blessing us with their presence on the Bryantland show. Like I said, Wade and Rachel from Elevated Wild really enjoy talking to them, picking their brains and learning some new things, man. Anytime you can do that, that is what I call a good day. Before I get ready to get up on out of here, man, I just want to remind y'all about our website, BryantlandCountry.com. BryantlandCountry.com has everything Bryantland that you need. We have all our podcasts on the website. We have videos. We got merch. You can contribute to our Patreon right on the Patreon tab there, man. BryantlandCountry.com. One-stop shopping for everything Bryantland. 
As always, we cannot thank you enough for supporting our podcast. Please continue to tell five people to tell five more people about what we got going on right here on the Bryantland Show. And I will make sure to see you guys next week on another episode of the Bryantland Show.